When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word podcast, a quick thank you to the Final Word sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, home of the Brick Lane Backyarder. Look for the beautiful green can with the yellow lawn chair. It looks so comfy. Described as a cheeky midstream, it's available year-round and a great reminder of the amazing things that take place in your backyard and backyards all around Australia. Head to Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Brick Lane, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia, the world's sporting capital. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of The Final Word. And thank you for listening to Jeff and Adam twice a week now. Storytime 53, the world's best Tinder profile, is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can find everything Final Word related at finalwordcricket.com. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam Collins. The guy down the other end of the Zoom screen, as always, is Jeff Lemon. It is the morning after the evening before, if you like, with New Zealand uh, taking out the inaugural World Test Championship down at Southampton. Mm-hmm. What a lovely thing that was. I, I sort of really I felt quite invested in the whole thing, Jeff, towards the end. Not so much about the result, but yep. you know, across the two years, we've been at so much of it. And in addition to the test matches we've been at, we've covered loads of them through this podcast week to week. So... It was a nice thing, and that's going to be the theme of our episode today, chatting to Phil Walker, the editor and chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, uh, talking about how we can improve it into the future. But reflecting on what's just been, it was a, it was a wonderful celebration when they were on the field uh, of the best of Test cricket. It felt good having all of this correspondence from happy New Zealanders, you know, who don't get that many opportunities to be happy as it relates to their cricket you know they've they've had some sadness in their time and there aren't that many New Zealanders in the world so quite a sizable percentage of the population has been in touch with us over the last (laughs) 24 hours to you know send emails or leave comments or whatever it was and also a lot of our Indian viewers and listeners were were also really happy that New Zealand got the win they were saying oh disappointing but we like New Zealand we respect them we feel good about them having got something to celebrate and you know it, it, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, there being a similar response if for instance Australia had won yes yes it's fair to say hypercourse our old mate John Leather um, made the point on Twitter that there have been three great finals in England in a row now so the 2017 women's mm-hmm. 50 over World Cup 2019 Men's World Cup and then the uh, the World Test Championship. So England's been a great venue for, for three consecutive mm. finals. That won't always be the case. Th- but th- they shouldn't play cricket there because the rains had them. <laughs> How dare, there was a conspiracy by the ICC to schedule it there because it was giving New Zealand a home ground advantage, apparently. Yes. Like, have you, has anyone who said that watched a test match in New Zealand over the last 10 years? They're all like 600... So 650 and then New Zealand bowl out some visiting team for bugger all because they're too tired. Like they play on flatter decks than we do in Australia. They just look green. Yeah, that's right. They go to England and it was a beautiful bowling display. Thoroughly deceptive, isn't it? You see the pitch on day one in New Zealand and sometimes they they deck around, but a lot of the time they don't. There was some bits and pieces we missed during the week, Jeff, on on the Daily Show. One of those we shouldn't have missed. It was that the great Vinny Mancat, one of the spirit animals, you could say, of the final word, was elevated to ICC Hall of Fame status. 
notice, which was a wonderful thing. It's rare that I find myself nodding along with Sunil Gavaskar on commentary, but um, some of the comments that he made mm-hmm. about Mancad was spot on. Not only the contribution that he made, <laughs> but the fact that the way his name's used in a pejorative sense. We, we celebrate the Mancad and we think it's a, a wonderful thing that he's got a, a dismissal named after him. But I absolutely respect the other side of it, that uh, running out mm-hmm. the non-striker should be called exactly that and not linked to his name. But nevertheless, this wasn't about that. This was about being one of the truly great early all-rounders. It's more that he's that that's the only thing people talk about. Yeah, that's he's right. a guy who made two double centuries batting for India, as well as being a, a prodigious bowler, you know, someone who took ridiculous numbers of wickets, someone who was so influential at a time when it was hard graft for India in their first couple of decades. Like most test teams, their first couple of decades aren't a lot of fun. And he was somebody who who, who did tremendous things. Um, took five wicket hauls on on eight occasions, 162 wickets over 2,000 test runs, played 44 matches, which, you know, you couldn't rack up those numbers in three years like an England player might now. It took years and years and years of touring and and graft to be able to get that many appearances for India. So he's someone who does deserve the respect for what he did on the field. It could have only been made better, Jeff, had... I'm not sure if you're watching this exact delivery, but Ash went into the attack Mm. late yesterday. And first ball... He pulled out and it looked just for the briefest moment as though he was going to run out Devon Conway. Mm. That would have been a perfect full stop on the celebration of Vinnie Mancad through the week. But Ashwin didn't. Uh, and, and the Twitter comments were brilliant. You can imagine what they were like at the time. It's like he should just run mm. out all 10 New Zealand players when he's bowling. And that would have made me <laughs> perfectly satisfied. Imagine that. Imagine he does an annual Kumble, takes all 10, but they're all run out at the non <laughs> We should be so lucky. We should be so lucky. Sadder news that came out this week from Australia is that Keith Bradshaw, the long-serving chief executive at the SACA, is very, very ill. There was an update from the SACA this week just explaining how ill he is. He's taken a, a leave mm. of absence for cancer that spread to his brain. He was made a SACA life member during the week, honorary life member, which is reserved for those who have made a a gigantic contribution. He certainly has. You think about Mm. the way that Adelaide Oval is thought of in the global cricketing consciousness. That's in no small part due to the ambition of Keith Bradshaw. Of course, he was the boss at the MCC before that. Uh, It's hard to think of like sort of an Australian coming in and and playing such an influential role in in an establishment like the MCC, but but he did so as well at Lord's. So we wish him our absolute best here at the final word and hopefully he finds a way to the other side of this. And, and he's able to return to his post because he's uh, been a giant of South Australian cricket over the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a story where, you know, Keith Bradshaw has been, cancer has been dogging him for a dozen years, a little bit more. And in that time, over that time, he's still been able to achieve mm. all that he's been able to achieve in South Australia. And with the Adelaide Oval redevelopment and, and all of the rest of it, he's, he's managed to hold it at bay but um yeah it's 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 coming back very hard so all of our uh, best wishes and love to keith bradshaw and, and his family and i know that a huge number of people who work at the sacra or who are related to cricket in in south australia or football in south australia as well are really hurting because of this you know he's someone that they care deeply about so our, our best to you all uh, Jeff, in terms of the agenda we have ahead of us today, we mentioned we've got the interview coming up with Full Walker. It's, it's more a round table than an interview, isn't it? We, we ended up sort of all getting stuck in at different points about uh, how mm. we want to see the World Test Championship improve. But there's been quite a lot of cricket played in the last couple of weeks and, and some cricket coming up. Mm-hmm. Before the series that England are currently playing, now England's men are currently playing against Sri Lanka, 
Owen Morgan was asked about historical tweets, and it was always going to happen, I suppose, given the ongoing investigation into Ollie Robinson uh, and the fact that there have been some tweets pulled out from him and Josh Butler and other members of the England team in and around the IPL uh, a few years ago where he referred to, you know, I mean, what it boils down to is, is that they were saying sir to each other, almost mimicking the way mm. that Indian fans would talk to them. And on the yep. on the scale of what is racist, what is offensive, I mean, this is on the fairly low end. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not trying to sensationalise this in the slightest. But on that basis, I was bewildered by Morgan's response, who went on to say that if I call someone sir on social media, it's a sign of admiration and respect. I mean, come on. Everybody knows what was going on there in their exchanges yeah. with each other on social media. Everybody who knows anything about anything knows exactly what was going on there. It was a, a, a playful, ribbing, mocking thing. I don't understand why Morgan mm. thought that this was the, the way to handle this and the way to play this. I mean, does he feel so invincible as captain of the England team that he can flatly ignore reality? It, it's an odd one. When you're someone coming from a different uh, cultural perspective and you do run into that kind of Indian style of discourse online. It is a bit strange at first. You, you're going, why, why are people calling me sir? I, I don't get this, all the rest of it. And, you know, you, you, you can find unfamiliar things funny, but there's a point where, like, basically you're mocking people for speaking broken English or not, not speaking English that you think is proper or whatever it might be. And, and so it, it becomes a, a sneering thing. It becomes a superiority thing, which... Like you said, it's not the gravest offence, but it's just it's just not a great look. You would have thought a way to handle that would be to say, yeah, that wasn't a great look. Um, you know, have thought about it now, won't be doing that again. That would probably be fine. But, yeah, it's a weird one to say, oh, pretty much I didn't do it, a bit like the Craig Overton defence. Oh, no, I don't think I would have said that. It's like, okay, well, several other people heard you say it and reported that you said it. So are you saying you didn't say it? I'm saying that I don't think I would have said it. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, how, how well, do the you next say- line here, if that is taken out of context, there's nothing I can do or control about it. So, no, I've not looked into it. I mean, yeah, this is the easiest answer in the world, isn't it? Where you go, oh, yeah, I saw that. Oh, gee, I, you know, that wasn't something. You know, having thought about it a lot more and, of course, the conversation going around English cricket in the last couple of years, of course, I wouldn't, that, mm. that, you know, I regret that and I'm sorry for doing that. And, yeah, we'll get on with it. And we've learnt a lot in the last couple of years. And, and no one would raise an eyelid. It wouldn't even be a story, I don't think. It probably wouldn't have even been mm. written up. And now it becomes a bit of a thing. So, yeah, headstrong Owen Morgan, no question. I think that's part of his charm as a leader, that he, that he doesn't give in that, he, that he's so tough but I think this is a, an instance where he could have shown just a degree of contrition and got a lot more out of it mm. I mean he made such touching comments after the World Cup final in 2019 about the importance of his multicultural team with Adil Rashid Moen Ali even his own background coming from Ireland uh, which all tallies and it, it all makes sense with his broader worldview mm. but yeah he's, he's pulled the wrong rein here which is worth noting uh, they did start last night in in uh, pretty slick fashion against Sri Lanka over at Cardiff uh, they held the visitors to 129 in the first of three T20 internationals uh, courtesy of the usual suspects Wood Rashid Sam Curran uh, Chris Jordan they're building a pretty healthy bank of death bowlers there in reply they knocked it off in like 17 overs Josh Butler popped one into the river mm. uh, an unbeaten 68 it went kind of to script with um, Sri Lanka's team in development you could call it over here at the moment so I expect that'll be a fairly one-sided series and we probably won't end up paying a huge amount of attention to it but it's a long road between now and and the T20 World Cup in October for for England they're starting it here honestly I did not even know it was on I watched the end of the World Test Championship final and then I started seeing posts popping up saying you know oh Sri Lanka are 37 for four I was like in what (laughs) like how (laughs) it it kind of overlapped Um, for the last hour didn't it so it was one of these quirky Mm. situations where you know there, there were there were two 
games running side by side. I mean, you just don't see it too often. So, But yeah, we'll keep a vague eye on that. There's a lot of other cricket going on, including the England-India one-day internationals that we were talking about on the final word daily from Bristol last week. We returned to Bristol on Sunday for the first of those. But a bit of news on the way through that we received from the ECB this morning. The domestic... England T20 comp. So there's the Rachel Hayhoe Flint 50 over comp. The 20 over comp is going to be called the Charlotte Edwards Cup. So we're going to have the, I suppose, the Hayho and the Lottie, which I think is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Charlotte's uh, England's most capped T20 international player. Um, she captained the team for 10 years from 2006 yep. till 2016. She won the Ashes three times. She won a one-day World Cup, for, or she led a one-day World Cup and T20 World Cup back in 2009. She played in the first ever T20 international, which was England's women against New Zealand in 2004. So before that, that men's game over at the Rose Bowl, one year before that, the women were already uh, blazing the trail and she's England's leading run scorer in the format so it's only appropriate that yeah friend of ours as well we should acknowledge that Lottie's been a great mate of ours for a long time but it was a nice bit of news to receive this morning I think it's also funny in that T20 was definitely her less preferred format she liked the 50 over format better nine tons in one day cricket never made one in in T20 internationals so um, that is slightly amusing as well that the the higher pace of the T20 format was not always to to her liking so that's a nice quirk as but, but, but I think it still works, though, doesn't it? Like having played in the first T20, having led England to the World Cup uh, victory in, mm. in, uh, at home at Lords in 2009, and having had the most runs for England in the format. Just if you gave her her choice, if you said, would you like to have a 50 <laughs> over innings or a 20 over innings, you know which one should go. Yeah, I suppose one day if the ECB moved to a structure where they have multi day cricket, they might rejig it and she can have the multi day, and then they might. Anyway, that, that's, that's a, that might be a long <laughs> way into the future. But yeah, the, the, the first of three uh, one dayers uh, at Bristol this Sunday, then we're off to Taunton, then Worcestershire. The big news in the squad, though, Jeff, is that Danny White's been dumped in favour of Sophia Dunkley, who will make her debut. She's made a debut, of course, in Test cricket last week, a very good one, and been playing T20 yeah. cricket for three years. But, yeah, a bit of an uproar around Wyatt, given she's been in great nick in the in the hey-ho. She made 100, I think, five starts ago against Pakistan. But across the last three years... One day cricket, mm. she's not been as good as T20 cricket, and she has been in a bit of a form slump, not making runs in New Zealand. Well, she's the opposite of, to Charlotte Edwards. You know, she'd much prefer to be in a T20 innings than a 50 over innings. That's where she's got the potency to express herself. So, yeah, 50 overs has, hasn't really been her style. Yes, she made a ton five games ago, but I mean, that was. How, that was a couple of years two, ago. It was in 2019. They've well, barely played 50, 50 over. over cricket, have they? Yeah. So it doesn't help. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can talk about last start, but if your last start was a decade ago, then it probably doesn't have much bearing on, on the current. So it seems reasonable to me. Like She's she's a much more dynamic, uh, impressive, consistent player in T20 cricket for whatever reason. And, of course, she's got plenty of time to get back before the World Cup. I mean, it's still... They've got a lot of cricket England between now and, and that World Cup in New Zealand in, in February and March. She's just turned 30, so time is still on her side. And they'll have T20s coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. So mm. uh, a bit of a watch this space. But yeah, it might be the, you know, might be the catalyst for her coming back in style later in the summer. Danny White, one of the, yeah, one of the most popular and high profile England players won't be featuring this week. Uh, while we're on white ball cricket, Jeff, uh, we had a conversation maybe two or three weeks ago about uh, the Australian men's team and, mm-hmm. and missing chunks of their international program in the West Indies and Bangladesh, seven players all up. But they're copying some backlash, which I wasn't necessarily anticipating. So Shane Warne's gone after them, uh, saying that, well, if, if they're willing to miss this and, and put the IPL ahead of international fair, then, then maybe that could come back to bite them mm-hmm. at the selection table. I mean, 
the fact that Shane Warne's saying that of all people given the way that he made money uh, during his playing career but that, that's neither here nor there Aaron Finch is on the record saying that he doesn't want the Australian players to go back to the IPL which kind of goes against what we mm-hmm. said and I think Malcolm Knox touched on this as well that maybe the IPL could be a good setup for the World Cup if it does end up getting played yeah. in the UAE it's not confirmed it will be in the UAE but we're, we're assuming it probably will be there's no right answer mm. here of course they're, they're all they're all sort of imperfect solutions but I don't think it's reasonable well, to say that those seven Australian players if you don't go to the Caribbean and Bangladesh that you know you might miss an ashes test or something like that that that's not the what's being said but you know the subtext to it all right it feels like posturing like saying oh well if you're not going to prioritize the pride of the you know the canary yellow the, the black baseball <laughs> cap of the T20 team um, ahead of ahead of your personal interests okay well the two is coming up uh, and the IPL they're at different times i don't know if anybody's explained the process of time or the passage of time to SKW, but one of them's now. And so after having done a whole lot of stressful and and difficult things, having a break could be important rather than doing something now and then being refreshed and feeling good in order to do something else later instead of doing (laughs) something now and then having a break later before the tournament where you don't want to be having a break. And maybe before the tournament where you're going to, for instance, be playing T20 cricket at a high standard in the UAE, maybe you could prepare for that by playing T20 cricket at a high standard in the UAE. Maybe that would be useful. I don't know. Traditionally, some teams have done that. They played a similar kind of game before the game that they want to be good at. I've, I've heard about it being done. <laughs> well handled there. There's some other travel stuff floating about as well. Some reports yesterday that the England squad coming to Australia might not be able to bring their family for the Ashes. And, I mean, mm. understandably, people kicked off about this. Not least Michael Vaughan, who went as far as to say that they shouldn't come if they're not allowed to bring their family. Now, mm. CA were pretty quick to hose this down, saying that, quote from a spokesperson here it's only june england aren't due to arrive till november we'll be going through the same process as we did with india so i suppose they're they're hinting there that they'll find a way through with the australian government but yeah the whole thing jeff i mean our colleagues in the press have no idea how they're going to make it into australia i mean i'm lucky that i can get there having an australian passport but not everyone has that privilege at this stage Mm -hmm. i'm sure there'll be a version of hotel quarantine for everybody but that's just one segment Uh, you know the ashes spectacle i suppose uh, does usually require a lot of people coming from england not just players and i suppose jeff it just reinforces uh, what a shambles the vaccination rollout's been in australia that we can't have a more mature conversation Mm -hmm. around this even though it is six months away or maybe not quite six now four or five months away that in all probability there will need to be some pretty harsh conditions put upon those coming into the country if they can get in there at all there's been a huge amount of vagueness i think it was dan bredig who made the observation that australian government uh, spokespersons keep saying uh, we'll sort things out later in the year or in the later months of the year and he said we're running out of later months in the year there aren't that many later months left Uh, so the way things are going at the moment with, you know, I, I don't know where we're up to on the full double-dose vaccination numbers, but I think it's still low single figures in terms of a national percentage. You know, it, it's it, it's a pretty dire situation for the prospects of getting a, a massive travelling caravan of people into Australia because aside from even if you put together an ECB retinue and press, you're talking several hundred people, add in travelling fans and you're talking tens of thousands probably over the course of the series um, there's you know there, there's an ecological 
environmental discussion to be had about that, about the, the, the feasibility of tens of thousands of people travelling around the world to watch teams play sport, but that has been something that that's happened in, in all sports for, for decades and that's the expectation that people will be able to do that. They probably won't be able to do that. All of the, you know, the usual stuff about the great atmosphere of Ashes tests, so much of that relies on England turning up, England supporters turning up. You know, you don't sell out every Ashes test if it's only home supporters. So it would be interesting to see how the crowds are, whether whether those grounds do fill up, if there are gaps of 20,000 odd left in the seats where, where the travelling supporters don't show. So, yeah, there's a, a there are a lot of ramifications. Yeah, there. and I suppose from a player's perspective, they won't mind too much if the England press pack aren't there. I don't know. Or the yeah, England I mean, fans. that won't be a factor, I don't, I don't suppose. But, you know, it's just, it's just yeah. part of it that it'll be a, a knock-on benefit for the home side in the scenario where it's just the England team and maybe some mm. support staff. And, and that's not just about quarantine. Uh, sorry, that's not just about vaccination. That's about the insufficient mm. um, national quarantine set up at the moment. So it rolls on, it rolls on, it rolls on. Maybe, maybe we don't have to hear the Barmy Army do that one song just all day again and then have everybody talk up how great they are because they're so creative because they sing songs. <laughs> Like they have like three Oh, Jeff, we have got um, England playing Germany at Wembley in the final 16 of the Euros mm. in a couple of days. And, and I can oh, guarantee yeah. we're going to hear two, two World, World Wars, Wars, one, one World, World Cup, Cup, and my granddad killed your granddad, and all that fucking bullshit will go on and on and on forever. Mm. Jeff, St. Lucia was where a couple of test matches were played between South Africa and the West mm. Indies, outside of the World Test Championship, I should add. But um, yes, mm-hmm. uh, South Africa pumped them in the first one. The second one was closer. De Kock and Brassi made runs. They're strong seam attack kept the West Indies down they set them 325 I reckon it was in the fourth innings and they started well mm. the home side and then Keshav Maharaj Kesha himself put a stop to that the dollar sign um, with uh, the only the second hat trick in South African cricket mm. or test men's test cricket history a bit of a tongue twister there but he picked up wickets four five and six Hugh Tayfield was uh, the no first? The, 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 the first South African or the only South African in a test match was George Griffin against England at Lords in, in 1960 where Fred Truman was the right. third wicket it's a funny one that because Griffin didn't play another test match it was his um, second and mm. final match because they thought he chucked it and it's still to this day the only um, the only test hat trick taken at Lords. But no, so Maharaj joins Griffin uh, as a South African, the forty sixth of all time in in men's test cricket, and a high quality one too. What a brilliant catch from Wian Mulder around the corner at short leg, diving with his right hand. I reckon it was just as good as David Boone's mm-hmm. catch off Warren uh, in nineteen ninety four. It was a screamer, well celebrated as you want to see with a hat trick and a bit of history for South Africa. It was. Uh it was the best catch by Mulder since they got Eugene Toombs. <laughs> the, the desperation to find a Scully headline with Mulder at some point when he does play against Australia. <laughs> he was the guy they sledged the shit out of, wasn't he, Jeff, at that, um, that tour game he went to. Benoni. Benoni Hazelhurst. Uh, where they, the poor bastard went out to bat. I think, he, I think I'm remembering this right. He went out to bat in the, in the mm. you know, South Africa A tour game and they just sledged the shit out of him. Out for as long as he was out there, and bounced and bounced. Yeah, the telling him that they were going to maim him there and there, or words to that effect. But um, he didn't play in the test yeah. matches, and but he's there at the moment. Yeah, they they were preparing for the possibility that he might play in the test match. It was like, well, we might as well start early, you know, as well. Uh, True Australian enterprising style. We might as well get in. Get go in, in go in hard. Yeah. Right, uh, Jeff. Uh, that's all on our agenda of cricket to talk about. Uh, I think we have just right. enough time. Just enough time. For uh-huh. a brief segment of Nerd Pledge. Uh, Nerd Pledge is a game, a game we play on this show. It's a quiz game, but it's a reverse quiz game. You quiz us. 
Uh, we're not doing any quizzing. We're getting quizzed. The quizzes come in from people on our Patreon page. They very graciously support the show. They help us make this show and the other show and then the other shows and the other shows that we also do. And they do that by sending us uh, contributions, financial contributions. But instead of a normal amount, like a flat amount, like a round number, they send us a very specific number and we have to work out what that number means. For instance, Danish Babar has sent us one pound and 30 pence, 1.30. That's what uh, thank you, Danish. I should say on the way through here, we announced on one of the daily shows that we weren't making story time last week. Uh, we're not going to make story time this week either. We've just got just a bit too mm. much on the dance card right now between my broadcast commitments with the women's internationals that are going on, a lot of travel across the country, the daily shows. We're just going to park it for one more week and return to it next weekend. Mm. So we're just going to do one nerd pledge this week, uh, and that will be the one thirty. I looked at two things, Jeff, and one of those was mm. that it's Archie Jackson's cap number. But I reckon we told Archie's story about six weeks ago, so we won't do that again. Mm-hmm. If you want to hear more about Archie Jackson, you can go back in the back catalogue. And, Jeff, only last week. We, we never, we've never told the story of his friend Jughead, though, um, <laughs> and so maybe at some point on the show we should get into that. Uh, that's another one from the Storytime Archives. Uh, Warren Bardsley has been a favourite of yours, Jeff, in, in recent weeks. You've mm. been given reason to talk about him, I think, twice. Well, here's a third time because his, uh, his 130 in Test cricket was part of his twin tons that you referred to a fortnight ago, the first Australian to make twin tons in Test cricket at the Oval in 1909, the final test of that series where Australia were able to uh, secure the Ashes 2-1. It was a drawn match, but they, they mm. didn't let England tie it up. The first anybody, the first player to make right. twin tons in Test cricket was, was W. Bardsley after a... And not great Ashes Tour. He didn't make a huge amount of runs in the first four tests, but he made lots of runs in the Tour games, so he kept getting picked. And then, yeah, repaid them when they needed to draw that last game to secure the uh, trophy. He did so with 130. So I I kept it pretty simple today with 130. I I looked at 130 as a score in Test cricket because there are some, some interesting links through to other final word people. We've talked quite a bit about... Palan Amragar, who was a, a pioneering Indian test captain in the 50s and 60s. He he was a, a great all-rounder, really big dude who bowled off spin, sort of one of those early, you know, someone who looks like they should bowl quick, but he, he comes up and bowls slow. Very good with the bat as well. And he held the records for a long time for the most tests played for India, the most tests captained, the most runs scored, the most hundreds made, until Sunil Gavaskar broke all of those through the course of the 1970s. But out of his 1200s, Amrigar, he made 130 twice, two different occasions against England, and then on tour in the West Indies. Linking to things that we've talked about on the show, Poonam Rout, who was playing for India's women in their <laughs> test match only last week that we were doing daily shows, she made 130 in her last start. We <laughs> talked about Danny Wyatt's previous start. Her last start was in 2014 in test cricket when she made that 130 and against she was out in that she she was out there for 355 minutes. Or was it 355 mm. balls? One or the other. Probably balls, actually. I think she, she faced 355 balls. deliveries for 130. Yep. But she played quite in quite an Minutes. enterprising fashion uh, in the second innings against England. But, uh, yeah, got out, I think, just on the stroke of lunch, something like got that. Out oh, hooking. yeah, she did. She got, got out hooking after lunch, didn't she? Which is mm. not hard to consider when she's about five foot one. Yep, yep. She smashed one as well. She nailed it, but straight to square leg. So, But in this 2014 game, the minutes count was 420 plus. She batted for over seven hours for this, this 130. Really took her time. But she let them get to 400 batting first and then they rolled South Africa twice in a row, made them follow on and won the test match. So it worked. 
It worked that time. Other 130s, you'll be interested in this because you like short sequences. Jacques Kellis at home versus the West Indies at the start of 2004 made 130 not out twice in a fortnight in two different test matches. You'll like this. You'll like this. You like short sequences. Put it on my gravestone. (laughs) I have my my kinks. And another thing that you liked was Adam Voges' debut in Dominica, Mm. which was 130 not out. Of course it was. And also Sean Marsh's 130 in Colombo. Not the debut 100 in Sri Lanka, but the time he went back to Sri Lanka in 2016, <laughs> didn't play the first two tests, got brought in for the third, classic smash style, peeled off a peel as 100, and then what happened after that? He played in one test the following summer and broke his finger or something yeah, like that? Yeah, that's right. That the- he opened up at the Wacker against Africa, looked a million bucks for 70-odd, broke his thumb, that was that, which was the last series that, that Voges was playing in uh, when, when mm. Voges got kind of steamrolled by South Africa in those first two test matches. Yes, um, and, and didn't make it to Adelaide. There were a lot of... Uh, it was like the platoon coming back after a, a rough engagement. A lot of players that didn't make it to yes. Adelaide after Hobart. Yeah, so... And, and then uh, as far as relates to other players of interest to the show, we were talking about Owen Morgan before. His test high score, 130. And also Greg Matthews. His highest test score was 130. So, you know, Greg Matthews' stories always of interest to you, Adam. But that is what I have for 130 this week. That may be some relations to what Danish Baba wanted us to find. If not, send us a DM, Danish, on Patreon and we'll come back to it when we next do story time. Thanks, Jeff. That's been Nerd Pledge. Uh, drop us a pledge if you see fit. We're on 618, which, Jeff, I think that means oh. we're level with... We're in, front. we're in front of James Anderson is on 617. I think he's 617. You little beauty. Of course, that'll go back on the 1st of July. So in a week yeah. from now, yeah. the nature of the credit... He'll have the lead he'll again. He'll have the lead again. So if you can support us mm. and... I mean, of course, we're making a lot of final word at the moment. We love making it. If you want to contribute to making it sustainable in mm-hmm. the longer term or continue to make it sustainable as we go through, patreon.com forward slash the final word. A beautiful little community there. I'm trying, Jeff, to find some time to set up the forum on there. There's a forum on the Patreon page mm. where it'll serve as like a message board. So instead of just DMing us, you can you can all have a conversation mm. with each other. We were looking at a WhatsApp group, but that might be a bit unwieldy. The forum might be a better way of doing it. So yeah. There's a thing called Discord, which I think is th- is what they use, but it's it's just another step into the internet, which I'm like, ooh, I've got to take a deep breath before, you know. Yeah. Every, every every new platform you get involved with, you're like, here I go, here <laughs> I go deeper. I, I like the idea, though, of, um, of our patrons. I mean, a lot of them have become friends on social media, which is totally lovely, and, and um, that's something that we're quite gratified by. But if this forum helps foster more friendships, mm. all the better. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Mm. Jeff, let's take a break. And after that, we'll be having a conversation with the boss of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. Jeff, over the years, you and I have had to catch our fair share of trains back to London at the end of a long day at a ground somewhere else uh, in the UK. And mm-hmm. I was in that boat, if you like, uh, on uh, Saturday. I thought you said it was a train. Yes, you it was a train it was, or a boat. It was, it was a train, but I was in that boat. Sorry, I know you don't like. Was it? Was like, it a hybrid form of transport? Things. Was it a sea bus? <laughs> did you did you get into a bus that went in the sea, or was it a train that was a boat? Was it a boat train or a sea bus? It was like one of those. Um, remember when the spirit of Tasmania had competition mm-hmm. from another ferry that went so quickly that people kept throwing up on the boat because it was going through the water too speedily, and they had to revert and just go back to the spirit of Tasmania. No, it wasn't any of those things. It was a, an old fashioned. Train. But we got held up a number of times. And as you do, mm-hmm. you make certain undertakings Highway to men. your family. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's wild out there. <laughs> I'm going to rob this tree. 
Well, we did have. All right, I'll stop well, interrupting. Yeah, you. We, we did. There, there was a, there was an unfortunate situation where there was someone who was lost on, on one of the platforms. Anyway, but we got delayed a couple of times due to signalling errors, and you know what it's like. These things hmm. tend to happen, and we were in mm-hmm. a part of the the network where I had no reception, and thus mm-hmm. a black hole, a black hole, and thus I couldn't text home to say I'm going to be home about an hour and a half later than I foreshadowed. I had to wait until mm-hmm. the delay was over. What if that was a two mm-hmm. or three hour delay? What if I could? That mm-hmm. Rach would have been. I wouldn't say she'd be beside herself. She probably would have gone to bed and thought I was going to work things out. But nevertheless, had I yep. had my Zolio with me, which mm-hmm. it must be said, I don't have a Zolio yet. I'll get one when I get back to Australia later in the year, hopefully mm-hmm. for the ashes. I could have passed on that valuable information. So it's yet another reminder Good. of why it's important to get a piece of this technology that means you're always able to be contacted no matter where you are on the train network. Adam, as this podcast is recorded, I can hear your young daughter crying in the background. <laughs> now, she was there the other night alone. Well, not alone. She had her mother, but she didn't have you. And, and you couldn't get to her. And you couldn't tell anyone. I mean, you can't really tell a baby that you're going to be home late because the train's delayed. It's probably not going to compute. But, but you couldn't make contact with your family. Such an important thing for you and for others. You wouldn't go on an Ashes tour for four months without your family. Neither would Michael Vaughan. He certainly wouldn't if you couldn't text them because you were stuck on a train coming back from Bristol for four months. But if you had, if you had this, if you had this box that I'm holding up to the camera, it's such a, a neat little device. It's light, fits in the palm of my hand. I have large hands, but it would still fit in the <laughs> palm of a smaller hand probably. Uh, the Zolio is a magic box that will turn your phone into a satellite phone, which means that even if you don't have reception, even if you're in one of those reception black holes, if you're on a mountain, if you're on a raft... If you're on a boat, if you're on a bus in the sea, you can still text or email anyone in the world, anyone in the world from anywhere in the world. A lot's made of how big you are, how big your feet are, and just generally how large you are as a human being. Yeah. <laughs> where, where are we Let's going? Let's this on the tracks. I keep this on the tracks? Where I was going? We should get baby John Burgess on the show at some stage. <laughs> Just let's, a thought. Just let's a, try and keep this on the track. Separate uh, thought. Whew, your hands. I once had, after mm-hmm. an Ashes Test match, 2013 at Brisbane, I saw mm-hmm. Stuart Lowe in the, in the Pineapple Hotel near the Gabba. And what do you think the first thing I yeah. did was when I saw Stewie Lowe? Put your hands on put his my hands. hands on his hands. I just wanted to get a feel yeah. for how big are Stewie Lowe's hands? How big do you think your hands are in relation to Stewie Lowe? I, I've never had the pleasure of comparison with the man they called Buckets, Buckets Lowe, uh, when he played for the St Kilda Football Club. If you're not familiar, if you're a UK listener, Stuart Lowe took a lot of marks. That means he caught the football with his hands, which were large, hence Buckets. Yeah, I, I, I don't think – I think his hands would be like – Thicker than mine. Like I, I just imagine Stuart Lowe would have fingers that were that were sort of bratwurst width. You know, like, like each finger would be. Yeah, he'd have girthy hands. Not not chode fingers, but like you know, thick fingers. They call him thick fingers low. They call me thick fingers low. Um, and I imagine that that my my delicate artist's um, fingers are probably a bit more slender. But you know, I might have him. I might have him covered for reach. You never know. You might be more, yeah. You might be more suited to playing the piano, whereas he's suited to taking big pack marks, as he was. Yeah. In his heyday across, I think, 300 games he played for St Kilda, didn't he? I think mm. he also let us, because we'd had a few, I think he also let us try and take a specky on his back. 
I mean, he was very mm-hmm. he was he was forbearing. Put it this way. He, I mean, he okay. probably gets a lot of yeah. piss types come up to him. He probably didn't yeah. expect it in Brisbane in an on footy state no. above the brassy line. But but there we were, <laughs> making it count. He probably hates that song by Reef that goes, "Now place these hands <laughs> on my own." <laughs> He's like, "Oh, I got to do this again." Ah, uh, Stewie Lowe, Zolio. Zolio.com is where you Zolio. get this machine from. Why- Stuart Zolio. Why would you want to do it? It's all in the show notes there. Uh, it's best we, we yep. put a stop to this and stop talking about how large Jeff yep. is. But look, the, the, that's the point, is the box will turn your phone into a sat phone and then you can put in any phone number or any email address and bang, they get the message from anywhere in the world. It's a light, it's cheap, it's affordable. It might save your life. Z-O-L-E-O.com. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and our guest this week is the Editor-in-Chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, who we've got on the show this week to talk about the World Test Championship. Of course, it finished at Southampton a couple of days ago. And given it was the Wisdom Cricketers' Almanac, different publication but same sort of spirit, same masthead, uh, which recommended a World Test Championship all the way back in 1995, we thought it would be worthwhile having the input of Wisdom in this discussion as we try and improve the WTC, especially uh, because Phil has been writing about it in this month's magazine. Uh, Good morning, Phil. Morning, Adam Collins. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Look, I think that where we should start this conversation is just giving an overview of how you felt the first two years went, just how, how it touched you or how it didn't, uh, how it inspired you or otherwise uh, as we got to the thrilling culmination at the Rose Bowl. But not just that, but the two years as a whole. Um, it really kicked in for me when Kane Williamson, funnily enough, said maybe about a year and a bit ago that he changed his approach on the final day of a test match to try and, to try and win the game and be prepared to lose it in order to... To, to get that result over the line. And I thought that when I heard that, that was a real sea change because for forever and a day, yeah, test match captains have have played played the odds and hedged their bets and approaching day five, the odd one of has dared to live a little, but invariably they have adopted the policy of not not getting turned over first and then seeing where they may end up halfway through that final day. But Kane Williamson was very clear and he said that they changed their strategy and their approach and were prepared to lose the game in order to win it. And I think, on the one hand, Kane Williamson is obviously you know, the, the progeny of, of Brendan McCullum and, and, and is running a show, as we now know for sure, emphatically, that is more advanced and more expansive than pretty much any other test captain out there. However, I think that attitude did infiltrate into other countries as well and 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 from from my point of view watching England I think there was a consciousness among the the England hierarchy I remember I interviewed Joe Root at the start of no in fact it was November last year it was and he knew all the permutations even though the boss of the ICC didn't know all the permutations Joe Root knew exactly what England needed to do and that there was a an engagement with it from top brass across the big big countries in particular that that I think flooded through through the whole system, really. And we saw it with Coley last week. We've obviously now seen it with, with New Zealand and Williamson. And I think we've seen it really across the board. Tim Payne as well was talking in, in, in serious terms about it. So as long as you get the, the big dogs buying into it, then it legitimises the whole process. Yeah, I think that's well put. Like there were believers and then there were those who were kind of 
slow, late to the party, if you like. Tim Payne was talking about this from the very first uh, WTC test match at Birmingham in 2019. It was sort of like the two-year journey back to England to win the thing. And, of course, they didn't get to the final due to uh, their slow overrates at Melbourne, which was an amusing sidebar, really. I say amusing because it served them right. But then Coley, even yesterday, in defeat, saying what a, what a great thing it had been for the advancement of test cricket. By contrast, you touched on Greg Barclay, the chairman of the ICC, who, who did cast some doubt as to the longevity of it because of the fact that it was a bit complicated and a bit, a bit hard to understand and, and flagging that it may not be a long-term fixture. So there is this contrast perhaps between players who really do see value in having context around Test cricket and administrators who aren't necessarily all the way in the cart as yet. On Greg Barkley, this was one of the reasons why we as an editorial team at the magazine were, were, were moved to try and tackle this problem because if the boss of the bosses is saying... While from an idealistic point of view it has merit, in real terms it's not really fit for purpose, admittedly in COVID times, which is a significant caveat, if the boss of the bosses is, say, is saying this, then, then we have a duty, if you like, as, as hacks, as journalists, to try and unpick this thing. I mean, I've, I've got a quote from Barclay because this kicks off the, the piece that we did in the magazine last month. From an idealistic point of view, he says, it probably had a lot of merit. And this was last November when he said this. Mm. But I do just query in a practical sense whether it's actually achieved what it was intended to do. Now, I wonder if he will say that this morning, mm-hmm. having seen comfortably, emphatically, the two best teams around, uh, going at it hammer and tongs, albeit in, in the rain. I mean, the beauty of playing in England is that you need six days for a three-day test match. <laughs> but, but you saw both teams faithful to what we were talking about earlier. Coley would have... Coley would have gone for it at any point. You know, if, if Coley had got 175 on the board, he'd have pulled them out and he'd have tried to bowl them out in 35, 40 overs. And you could sense that. The fact that Coley went in with 10 minutes to go on the penultimate evening, you know, there was no suggestion of a night watchman. Both of those teams were going for it. And both of those teams are indisputably the best two team, best two five-day teams in the world. So it would be interesting to hear what Mr. Barkley were to, to say the morning after. Because has it achieved what it was intended to do? Well, by hook or by crook, yes. Can it be better? Can it be more substantive? Undoubtedly, yeah. The bottom line is that teams don't play each other twice and there is a, a hugely skewed uh, system whereby uh, you have to cobble together certain results. And, and, and that's where the, the fairness element falls down, I think. Um, that said, we did still get the best two teams playing against one another and putting on one hell of a show considering it was raining half the time. It would also be interesting to hear what Barclay, as a New Zealander, would have to say to all of the people in New Zealand who are absolutely chuffed about this. Like This really matters to New Zealand cricket supporters. We've been hearing from lots of them you know, in, in the comments and on social feeds and messages and all sorts of things, particularly after 2019 and 2015 and coming so close in two World Cups. The fact that it mattered at the end of the two years is, is really interesting to me. It's sort of at the start of the two years, it was very much like the cool kids approach. It's not, it's not cool to like anything new, you know, that now nah, it's getting involved is for losers. You don't want to seem enthusiastic about something. Enthusiasm's for losers. Sit up the back and just 
on it. And, you know, we probably did a bit of that ourselves. I, I don't know. I haven't gone back and listened to the show from, from that time. But it, it, was, it was hard to take it seriously or treat it as a real thing at the start of the process. But in that last six months or so, it was significant. It was important. People were talking about the permutations and what results had to happen and what, what India winning in Australia meant and, and what England needed to do in India and so on. And by the time it got to the final this week, it felt like everybody who's interested in cricket, who's really a cricket person, was following that match, even if they weren't following India or New Zealand, because it was important. The result felt important. And the fact that that has felt so important seems to me to lend a huge amount of momentum to the next phase of it, where it would be pretty hard to shut it down now because you would be saying, this thing that you all thought mattered um, just a, a few days ago or a week ago doesn't matter anymore. If, if we were to reverse it, if we were to go back to playing well-meaning bilateral friendlies, which is what the Ashes is, and, 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 and downwards, then we may as well just all pack up and go home, right? I mean, anyone who's, who's really, really passionately caring for the lifeblood of five-day cricket has to have been behind this concept. Now, whether it was a garbled first attempt or not is largely... Largely irrelevant now, because mm. as you say, it's now it's now there, it's now embedded in the in, in the modern narrative of, of of international cricket. You know, and we don't want to fall back on the, on the whole context word because it's, it's it's almost a cliche now. But we've been crying out for this. We've been crying out for this this moment really for a long, long time. The, the ICC, in its eternal genius, has kind of played around with this idea for fifteen, twenty years. Well, finally, we're there. Finally, we've got there now. So the, the next question is, how do we fine-tune it? How do we make it even better? So it, it kind of captures the imagination right from the start. People can understand the process. Um, just just on, on, that, on that first question again, Adam, sorry, just to go back to that. I remember, and also people maybe think, you know, we're cricket writers, journalists, whatever, that we watch the whole lot with the same kind of commitment. Well... That's not the case, is it? You're wondering whether to go to bed at midnight when the clocks are peculiar and, and New Zealand and Sri Lanka are playing and there's a bit of rain around in Dunedin. Well, I remember two Christmas, yeah, two Christmases ago watching it all in a way that I wouldn't have done before because it felt like it mattered just that little bit more. You know, it did just matter just that little bit more. And if we can then bed this thing in over the next cycle and two and three then we have something that we can genuinely hold on to here. Uh, and then what we've seen in the last week develops a kind of legacy element as well. And New Zealand being the first, well, who's going to be the second? Who's going to be the fifth, the sixth, the seventh? This is what we need. No question this is what we need. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it comes from a place of love that we now are going to go on to criticise it and suggest improvements. It's not that we're trying to shit can it, far from it. It's that we can see where the shortcomings are and we realise that now's the time to have the conversation. So the ICC back in 2018 and 2019 when they were scheduling this said that the first two cycles would, would sit, it's not a trial, but they wouldn't tinker with it. Cycle one and cycle two will be as it is. So don't expect any radical changes over the next two years. It'll essentially be the same thing. Hopefully it won't be compromised by COVID this time and they can go with the, the pure point system rather than percentages. But that notwithstanding, it'll be the same with one pool of nine teams uh, you play three home series three away series you don't play two teams um, a five test match series is worth the same as a two test match series all of the quirks and bugs along the way are going to remain however cycle three um, there is a chance to, to get some meaningful change and I reckon that the only way that'll happen is if we build up momentum now that we start talking about it 
from day zero, which I suppose is today, given the final was yesterday, and start advancing these conversations. And that's why, you know, I've got the magazine up to the camera right now. That's why uh, this edition of the magazine is timely, because you've had a crack at trying to find a way to include 12 teams and thread the needle on having two groups and having seedings and overhauling the way the points are allocated. I mean, it's hard to do in one answer, but why don't we start with the team aspect to it? The importance of having all 12 test-playing nations involved rather than essentially leaving out three full members who will never get the opportunity otherwise to play in this centrepiece event in test cricket. Yeah, well, at the top of the show, obviously, you can't afford test match status to so-called emergent nations and then deign to allow them to play it. Um, and and relegate them to playing kind of, you know, back alley test cricket. Well-meaning friendlies. Indeed, indeed. So, so that in itself had to be addressed. That was that was at the top of the top of the agenda for us. Um, so how do you get twelve teams to be playing meaningful test match cricket? And so you know the obvious way. Well, we, to be honest, we discussed three groups of four initially, and then we settled in the end on two groups of six, and we seeded those two groups of six. Uh, based on their current rankings, ensuring that each of them added up to 39 points based on their the, the number of their rankings. So they're seeded as accurately as we can get. From there, we looked at the existing schedules, which is obviously cramped and obviously saturated, as we well know. And then we looked at the marquee series, the big money spinners, and we thought, how what time scale do we need in order to get this thing off the ground so it doesn't impinge too much on the, the, these kinds of big series that home boards require and need and obviously the punters love and watch. So we have extended the period to three years rather than two. So at the minute, every two years, you get a new champ. As our one stands, it runs over three years. In these groups of six, you play each other in three test series only and your five tests, they sit outside of it. So you play three test series only, home and away, once against each team, right? Dead straightforward. Two groups of six, therefore you play 15 test matches. You play 15 test matches across this two and a half to three year period. So five and a bit test matches per year. We've we've worked out the, the maths and we think that that shouldn't therefore impinge too much on, as I say, the established marquee series that we all, that we already have. From there, the top two go through to what we've described as a finals jamboree, if you like, right? A month-long finals tournament with the top four teams, two from each, and you play each other in a round robin. So each team then plays three more test matches to discern who becomes the top two teams, and then the top two teams go through to the six-day final, which we've just seen. We did discuss a three-test final, there is merit up to a point, I think, in that. Coley was pushing for it um, at the end of, of, of the, the, the last game for obvious reasons, perhaps. But there is merit to it. I get it. I do understand that. But I think for the sake of creating that impenetrable memory, that untouchable memory, a six-day final is still the way to go, I think. And if you've had those three test matches in the round, Robin, to get to that final, then you've earned the right to be there and then you have your showpiece across a week 
Uh, we've written down a six-day final. After what we've seen, why not have two reserve days? Why not have seven reserve days? I mean, you've got to get <laughs> yeah. a result in this thing. You've got to get a result in this thing. I, I think because we have seen people saying, why don't you have a timeless test and so on, which you don't need to do unless you want to see teams scoring at point eight of a run and over um, across their innings. But you could have a system where you have to get the 450 overs in and that takes as many days as it takes. And Say you have, you know, three days after the initial match. If we if we start at the pointy end, start at what the, that final might look like. If you have three days that would mostly be used for the winners to do press junkets, to around in an open top bus, you know, whatever it is, sort of bask in, in the glory of their victory. And then if you needed to turn those days into playing days, you could. It might be something like that to say that, you know, the board whose team are in that final, they commit to staying on for three days after the final, which will be your your spillover days in case things really go awry. And if you can't get a result after seven or eight days, well then you know, it probably is fair enough to sack the whole thing off and let people get angry at whichever. Why do they play cricket in Barbados? They should never play cricket in Barbados. <laughs> it rains there sometimes. Um, but yeah, that, that, that seems like the least difficult part of it to solve is getting enough play in, in the final if you mandate that you have to bowl the overs no matter what. Yeah, yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, just just as, as an aside, really, regarding the two groups of six, now, naturally, you're going to have India. I mean, by our system, incidentally, based on the current rankings, India would be in a group with Ireland, say. Now, with the best will in the world, that's going to be a relatively one-sided test series, especially in India. Um, so we have offered the home boards the right to run four-day test matches at their own behest. And after the first cycle, we would welcome further discussions with home boards to see if that is working for them and if it's working for the integrity of the competition as well. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not a flag waver for four-day test matches by any stretch of the imagination. I can understand the argument for four-day test matches with certain certain teams in certain places on certain occasions. Furthermore, if India are playing at home to Ireland and they want to blood some young young players, if they want to rest Kohli and Sharma and, and Bumrah and the rest, that is their prerogative. And we can't be so protective of the sanctity of Test cricket that we can't allow for a little bit of flex as the game moves through and drags itself through the modern world, right? So I think we have to we have to acknowledge that there is something in place that is sacrosanct. We ha- we have twelve test match playing nations, and we have to protect and nurture that. But we can't nurture it to death either, right? We have to allow for a degree of flexibility within this. Yeah, I like the four day test lever that you can pull. I think it, it it's a nice way of balancing off the two test series affliction that test cricket's had in the last 20 years none of us like two test series but I mean Tim Wigmore's done a lot of great work on this talking to boards that don't have as much money and they simply can't afford to host three test match series time and time again I mean New Zealand have been one country for example that have gone on a record about how hard it is to put on three test match series when they're a loss leader for them so my way of thinking is is that you permit New Zealand I mean, maybe that'll change now they're the world champions. I hope it does, but let's assume it doesn't. That they can, they have to play three test series in a WTC, but they're permitted to host them over four days. If that helps, 
if that's the sugar to help the medicine go down, I'm pretty relaxed about that. And likewise, if it means that, I mean, Ireland, Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, they're not going to be making money hosting Test cricket either. If their home fixtures are played over four days, at least initially, I think that's fine. I think that's, you know, no one wants... I say nobody, there are some advocates for it, but not many people want to see four-day cricket replace five-day cricket. We certainly don't here. I don't think our community want to see that at all. But if that's what it takes in the short term to get rid of two test match series in some instances. Now, I would never imagine a scenario where an Ashes test or a Bordegavaska test or an England-India test or an Australia-South Africa test for that matter, or, you know, you can rattle off a number of the bigger countries that, that they'll never be played over four days. We know that because they make money. But where they don't, I think that's a reasonable compromise to make in the short term. There is the other side of that is that we've, as we've seen with the final, we've had all of this trouble of trying to get a match even into six days when... Weather's not cooperative when light is not uh, helpful and when teams don't get their overs in. So when you combine those three factors, the more you have four-day tests, the more likely you are not to get results in those four-day tests because you, you can't play past a certain time at night. We've talked about your idea about flexibility of substituting in pink balls in the evening instead of red so that you can carry on under floodlights. That might be one partial way yeah. around it. But, you know, fundamentally, unless you've got big mismatches where teams are getting rolled in two days and it doesn't matter. If there is rain around, if there is weather around, and if there are teams who are bowling 78 overs in a day instead of 90 because there's no disincentive to do so, then you are going to end up with draws. Yeah, you're right, but that's going to require a determination on behalf of the home boards to commit to 100 over days. Or 98 over days. Let's call it 98 over days. 98 over days to make up as much of the fifth day as they can. Now, the three of us know full well they're not going to get 98 overs in uh, the vast majority of the time uh, because of the, the over rates problem uh, and that's not going to get fixed we know that so yes but they might get 94 in and if they get 94 in uh, it, it's better than 82 I mean it's all it's all compromise isn't it we're, we're just trying to get uh, the best in an imperfect uh, world so yeah I, I like Phil that you've got four day tests as part of that not because I want them but, but I think they're, they're an important part of the solution yeah again in the short term yeah how, how this thing is paid for is probably the knottiest problem of the lot, isn't it? Um, as you say, Adam, we, all, we know that certain boards lose money from staging five-day test matches. Speak or to staging a, any test matches. Or staging any test boards matches, absolutely, yeah. lose money putting on multi-day cricket, it, it's, and they lose vast amounts. You know, Ireland were talking about it costing them half a million euros to put on that test against Pakistan. Indeed, indeed. And you speak to the, the CEO, the excellent CEO of Island, Island Cricket, then you know, he's quite upfront about that. But we also know, or at least we strongly suspect, that the ICC has the cash to subsidise test matches in a meaningful way, right? So this conversation is an idealistic one and we can afford to be idealistic at this point but we, it also has to be had in the context of knowing that the money it, is not just draining out of the game right so so one thing that we we considered was turning these five test matches per country per year into a full-blown ICC event right with all the promotional and marketing and sponsorship heft that the ICC brings to their big all-singing, all-dancing ICC affiliated tournaments, right? So, therefore, they can be motivated to free up that money and to generate that money to pay for these test matches in these emerging countries in particular where it's a loss leader to be playing these kinds of games. 
you know, it might be a utopia that's out of reach, but we can afford to be re- to be idealistic, I think, and to hope that the full member boards can unite behind this belief that any future version of this of the world game needs Test cricket at its heart, and if you want it at its heart, and the the lip service that is paid to it is genuine, then we have to find a way to pay for it, and the bosses have to find a way to pay for it. We are not a poor game. In many, many aspects, we are not a poor game. But we need the will. So the way that you're seeing it with the... The, the way you, you'll build up the points in order to qualify for this final round, you talked about certain series sitting outside of the qualification process. Say England and Australia, who will hell or high water play 10 test matches against each other every four years, and sometimes 15 if they can find a way to shoehorn <laughs> another series in. <laughs> it, it, does that mean that they would play a three-match series that was a World Test Championship qualifying series and a five-match series that was the Ashes, and the two would not be the same, like those couple of random England-Australia series that weren't Ashes series here and there throughout history? Well, that's a good question. And um, once we went to print and sent it away with a spring in our step, I mean, showed it to a few people and thought, oh, yeah, this is pretty much bulletproof. That thought crossed my mind, right? (laughs) Maybe it should have crossed my mind the week before. The Mm. saturation element is is a fair one. So it brings into into play the question of whether in a five-test Ashes series, three of those test matches count towards the World Test Championship and two of them are merely in inverted commas, a part of the overall five-test narrative. Yeah. So there is that argument and to be made. Three? That, 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 that said, <laughs> that said, Jeff, that said, and I, and I like it, and I like what you're saying, but that mm. said, we're talking only really about, across a three-year period, six additional test matches. Three tests at home, three tests away. Mm-hmm. Across three years. So yep. while we are wrestling with that sense of inertia, that Groundhog Day inertia. There's another test match between England and Australia. It, is it prohibitively saturating the, the story? Maybe, but maybe not. Six test matches over three years. I mean, they already play each other a lot anyway. So does it diminish or does it add to the five test narrative? I, I, don't, think it, I don't think it diminishes. Well, I think the way, I mean, I, I think I might have, advance this to you after you went to print. I might want to be one of these annoying people. But I reckon, look, you're looking at, in terms of which test series are played over more than three at the moment. So, in other words, which test series for the WTC wouldn't be part of the Future Tours program, right? Australia-England. Big three. Australia-India. India-England. There's only three left. I mean, I wish there were more. I wish we were talking about South Africa playing four test matches mm. against Australia and England and New Zealand coming over for four. But it's not going to happen, is it, for the aforementioned which, reasons around finances and which the congested they did schedule. Recently. But it's not happening again. It's, we know it's not happening again. In, mm. in the FTP, as it's scheduled out to Phil Ramami, 2026, 2027, whatever it is, we know that those four and five test match series are only happening between three mm. countries. So I think that... We've seen with the ICC Women's Championship a, a number of times when they've scheduled four or five one-day internationals with only three counting, that three count for the points in, in, in the ICC's mm. framework and two sit outside it. My sincere belief is that let's say we picked test matches three, four and five out of the Ashes to count for WTC. I don't think test match one and test match two are going to mean any less to Australia and England in an Ashes context because they don't count for WTC points. I have belief that the existing trophies are sufficiently incentivised and the history that goes hand in hand with that, that we can probably pull that off so that we don't need to necessarily have series that sit outside of the FTP because then we might feel 
end up in this slightly frustrating situation as we have this week where people are pointing at that series in St Lucia and saying, hang on a minute, why are South Africa and the West Indies playing when there's no points up? Or or why did New Zealand come here Mm. for two test matches against England and they were able to rest players, both sides were able to rest players and, and so on? I think using the existing structure might get out of that because the Ashes and the Border Gavaska already mean enough that any additional mm. test matches it won't weigh it down i don't i don't think there's any doubt that they mean enough but it's more that there will be queries around you know if you if you pick out test matches 3 4 and 5 and one team happens to get smashed 3-0 in the first three and then win two consolation wins and they end up with more world test championship points out of the series that they lost you know they, whichever way it cuts there will be points where it doesn't stack up it doesn't seem to work that one team has taken more points out of a series where they've actually been the, the the worst team overall, that sort of thing. It opens up that Yeah, it, it does, but I think that's a better scenario than at the moment where two test matches... I think Stuart Broad said it, didn't he, Phil? Uh, that how's it possible that two test matches, you know, that are thoroughly off-Broadway and a run in two weeks with, you know, not a lot of attention being... Maybe a big mismatch, say, uh, unfortunately, Bangladesh towards the bottom of the table at the moment. They only played seven test matches in, in the entire two years, by the way, Bangladesh, another inconsistency, consistently getting two test match series and nothing more against the Ashes over five. I mean, that felt incongruous as well. So standardising it with three, at least in a WTC context, would, would get us around that problem. I reckon that that's the lesser of two evils by some margin. Yeah, there's a neatness to having these three test series outside of the existing marquee series. There's a neatness to it and and it's easily relatable and easily understandable. Um, that said, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. And I guess speaking from an English point of view, having been in Australia three times and seen Alistair Cook draw one test match, and <laughs> I'm, I'm, ten, I'm ten and half, I think, at the moment. Every time I end up in Sydney, it's a miserable, bleak experience for me, especially when it's literally 47 degrees, as it was last time. So maybe it does actually inject a degree of of jeopardy into those those kind of mm, so-called yeah. dead rubbers which are maybe not quite as dead as they would be otherwise so i can see that argument but i'm also i'm, I'm also in favor of the, the the purity if you like of having these three test matches outside of the existing structures and everybody knows it and everybody can get their teeth into it the point that jeff makes about you losing a series but winning the test champs that doesn't sit particularly comfortably but, you know, none of, none of this is ever going to be absolutely immaculate. This is cricket, right? No. Yeah, I, and, and in some ways having the idiosyncrasies is kind of part of what cricket does, you know, the fact that a team that is comprehensively beaten across five days can still draw a test match and that sort of thing. But I think that we would run into trouble with the credibility of who makes the final if it were something like, you know, one Ashes team gets 4 nil or whitewashed or whatever, but then that losing team happens to win the three test series one nil for the test championship points or whatever it is you still wouldn't feel that the better team had had got through or, or had got the reward and then if you've got you know 10 ashes tests plus a three test qualifying series then England and Australia play each other in the round robin and then they both make the final and play I mean at some point you're going to be like 
fuck's sake, you know, I do not want to look at Joss Butler's face again. Just and, and he probably won't want to be there either. Like at some point, they've got to stop playing cricket against each other. Just the same three countries going around and around again, which which is the main thing that works here. Where you know India would have to play Ireland, Australia would have to play Afghanistan across three Test matches instead of we'll give you one four dayer at the start of the summer as a practice match. That's the main upside. Exactly, you don't have a choice. You know whether India want to go to Zimbabwe or not. They don't have a choice. Or Australia that mm. wants to go to Zimbabwe yeah. or Afghanistan. Or they forfeit their the points. Yeah, yeah that, that's right. Nice. Yeah, that's right. And I like that. It does hold them. It does bind them. Although I'm sure the big three will try and get out of that. Now, this brings us to another uh, sort of wrinkle. I suppose there's two wrinkles that jump out at me, neither of which I think are insurmountable, by the way, but it's just part of it, that teams will uh, play three home and two away. Who do they play at home? Who do they play away? By virtue of... I mean, you know, mm. I know you get, we'd have to pull <laughs> balls out of the hat, wouldn't we? There's no way of doing it unless it was done in a randomised way. But some countries will play only twice away from home and maybe away from home they get Ireland and and, and Bangladesh and they're at a distinct advantage compared to a, a country that might pull India and, and Pakistan out of the hat to play away, again, to pick the extreme example. So there's that, Phil. And another part of it is mm. we have to find a way to have India play Pakistan for the first time in a test match since 2007. In the current WTC, the reason why two countries aren't played has to be driven by the fact that they don't want to see these two nations play each other in test cricket. We need to clear that hurdle. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I don't know. Look, play, play it in Dubai. Play it. Play it in in London. Yep. Play it in Melbourne. If by some fluke Pakistan had managed to get to the final of this thing against India, then they'd have had to have played against one another, right? Yep. Mm. They're, they're both same in, as every World Cup. Exactly. They're both in the tournament. You know, we all sat in uh, Old Trafford a year year and a half ago and watched one of the all time great atmospheric games of cricket. I mean, it was a it was a blowout, admittedly, but that atmosphere was astonishing at Old Trafford when the, when the two big superpowers played against one another. It's not beyond the wits of man to find the neutral venue where the two of them can play. And it's also worth pointing out, there's no real animosity between the, the players, the individuals, right? There may be mm. macro animosity and then some, and boards who are jostling for political position and who are often hand-in-hand hand with even higher-up political figures. All of that obviously applies. It doesn't apply with the players, doesn't apply with the actual teams themselves. So, again, this is our utopia, right? This is our idealistic vision of how this thing works. Uh, these two play each other, and they play each other, I don't know, in your backyard. Go and play at the MCG. It'll pack, pack the place out, and it'll be a mm. sporting event that we'll never forget. Yeah, I like it. As for the other point, I can't even remember what you said. I don't it was just anymore. about oh, yeah, three, yeah, the three, three and the two. two. I mean, the, the three, three and the two is a funny one, isn't it? Because it's impossible to avoid, but... I mean, unless we expand it to 14 test playing nations, Mm. I'm not against that. Maybe in a couple of cycles' time, it'll be three home, three away. But where we're currently at, it's got to be this way, doesn't it? Mm. Look, this was the thing that we we got in in tangles over and we couldn't really disentangle it. And I think Joe, the the, the editor of the magazine, co-editor of the magazine, kind of came up with the idea that you try and recalibrate it for the following cycle. But then that's difficult because you'll be changing the seedings based on how you've gone mm-hmm. in the group. So, yeah, look, it's not absolutely ideal. It's not entirely preferable. But, yeah, mm-hmm. as you say, maybe one day down the line, you know, Holland can, can strap on the whites as well yeah. and, and, and another side as well. And, and then we yeah. can deal with that problem. In the context of what we're trying to do here, I think we can suck that one up. I'm certainly prepared to anyway. Yeah, there, there would 
you would think be a way where, say, the teams that are drawn to play the higher-seeded teams in the group might... If you were playing two away, you might play them against the, the tougher opponents. And if you were playing uh, t- three away, then you might get a, a slightly easier run or whatever it may be. They'd have to be... There are always teams who are going to get the worst end of the draw, and we we get this every footy season, Adam, yes. where someone's complaining about who who had to play Collingwood twice on a Friday well, night, or who, who had the, a, the two trips to well, Perth. The AFL and, have had a chance to make that draw elegant for what? What about turning out? It's nineteen ninety four, and the reason they don't is they want to engineer double headers or teams to play each other twice mm. for financial gain. So even in a in a competition that's got parity with salary caps and and all the rest, uh, yep. there's still this inconsistency. So I see no reason why Test cricket should be held to a higher standard. So I'm pretty relaxed yeah. about that. It's more, Adam, what happens with teams needing a certain amount of series. If you're if, if you're spanning over three years, say, that covers three cricket seasons. If you're a team that only gets two home series, then you have to organise some other home series that's a bilateral that sits outside the World Test Champs and then doesn't have that context. That's the, the main downside to that. Yeah, I think that's another question, isn't it, Phil? Like, you'd have to permit... I mean, ideally, the existing structure... This is the argument for two years, isn't it? If you're playing over two years, it means that your existing future tour program commitments can be shoehorned into the WTC, which is what we've seen in the last two years. Like We haven't seen... Very rarely have we seen test matches sit outside the, outside the formal structure because they have the presence of mind to bring out countries who they already have to play and meet their commitments to the ICC. So over three years, Jeff's problem does become an issue. If you're scheduled only to play two lots of test cricket at home over, over three summers, then you'd have to find a, a separate series for uh, your home season, which would sit outside the structure. Yeah, yeah, I, I, can, see that's, I can see that's potentially problematic. The, the overall thinking putting aside five test matches per year is that it's actually it's energising teams that are struggling to play test cricket to play test cricket and it's incentivising them to play test cricket and so mm. you take you take Bangladesh who have played next to no test cricket in the last two years or even the West Indies who who, are, who, who don't play anywhere near as much test cricket as, as they should in, in an ideal world well this is this is giving them the, the platform to do that but it's stretching the time scale sufficiently for them to, let's be fair, mm. if they need to play a dozen T20s in a week in order to pay their bills, then they can do that. But by stretching it by that extra year to three years rather than two, it gives them the space to maintain their existing business models while also dropping in these newly incentivized test matches in there without, you know, mm. without caving in the system, if you like. And I suppose, Phil, the last part is the, um, the spectacular uh, once every three years over six weeks initially in the UK. Perhaps let's start with the UK, start with England. I mean, I think it works as a venue because, well, put it this way, they are real pitches. So I think Australia gets ruled out because of the drop-ins problem in recent years. You know, middle of footy season as well. If you're playing at mid-year, you're, you're resigned to playing it in, uh, at grounds rather that, that wouldn't necessarily fit in, um, i.e. up in the top end. I mean, you could do it, but I think we can strike out for the time being, anyway, the Southern Are you Hemisphere. saying Darwin should not get the World <laughs> Test Championship? Politely. I am dis- uh, you're saying Tony Island Stadium <laughs> in Townsville is I'm, not I'm, po- I'm, the I'm politely place. saying that, yes, that the Test playing grounds, and a lot of them are dropping wickets anyway, so I don't think that's the, the ideal uh, place to play a final. So in the short term, England seems to make sense. And look, the pitch we had at Southampton was a beauty, and I think that the contest between bat and ball 
is invariably a good one here. But maybe there is something to be said for if you win the comp, you know, in two years' time, you get to host the final series. I'm certainly not against that. That's how the World Cup was initially until what? When did we change that? Was it 1999, I think, was the first time? For, for a while there, if you won it, you got to take it with you. And then in 1999, it came back to the UK for the 50-over World Cup, Men's World Cup. So, yeah, maybe it could be done that way. Yeah, possibly. Um, why would it be prohibitive to play in Australia? Because the pitches are too flat and we'd be struggling well, to get results. There's football, football season, in, assuming we're going to play it in the middle of the year. I mean, you could play it. You, you, I mean, you could re, redo it so that we're playing it during the Australian summer. But, well, there's two challenges, isn't there? Um, the majority of pitches in Australia are now drop-ins and thus I don't think that is the best contest between bat and ball, one. And two, um, they are football stadiums for more of the year than they are cricket grounds at the moment. Okay. Well... When we say a three-year cycle, I think there has to be a degree of flexibility for the seasons where cricket is played, right? So in, in England, it would be straightforward. You play it in that early part of the summer before the, the inevitable four or five test series that comes in the latter part of the summer. So you play it during when the World Cup was played, for example, right. in 2019. Right. In Australia, it may be the late October, early November period, or it may be that, and this is a month, right? And we've worked it out. This is four and a half week tournament to play the three test matches plus your final. Or more likely it would be February, March, because that would be right. closer to when it would otherwise be played. Yeah, that's fair enough. And it would be that point of the summer where there's not actually a huge amount going on. Football season hasn't really started. There is kind of that twilight zone where we had the last 50 over World Cup. Yeah, okay. And, and if you go back to the 50 over World Cup in the 90s, in, in the early part of 92, it was in Australia and New Zealand and then in the latter part of 96-7 four and a half years on it was in Asia and then barely three years later it was in England in 99 and so there was a, some flexibility there based on the seasons which I think you'd have to to play into this this overall system also the final game of each cycle would need to be a certain number of months in advance of when the first game of the finals would be played because the hosting country say it may be England if this is going to be an, a broadly ICC based tournament then England the English board would need to to put in place some additional cricket to pay their own way and this is knotty there's no question about it this is this is tricky and knotty but what we've seen during Covid times is that where there's a will there's a way and teams can be energised and incentivised to come and play at a relatively short notice Pakistan played at the back end of England's last summer very, very short notice and they agreed to, to sign up and save the day, in effect. So if, if it were to, to be, say, held in England first time round and England weren't in it, then the ECB would need to have enough time, a few months, in order to schedule some additional bilateral cricket in those slots where in England you can still guarantee there being sellouts. And it might be a bit me messy that there is the big finals day taking place concurrently with the England bilateral stuff, who be playing whoever it may be. But so be it. So be it. We have to find a way to do this thing, I think. Phil, I feel like uh, we've gone through this in such great depth that we're going to have to take a, just a step back from it now. Uh, I think we're, yes, we're well truly in the weeds. But I think that's a good thing. Again, I, I reckon that this is the time for it over the next six months or so as the, the second cycle starts. It's a valuable contribution to the debate in the magazine this month, uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly. I'm showing it again in the camera, as you would know as long-term listeners to the podcast, hopefully bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW to get yourself your 44% 
uh, discount on the magazine. Phil, uh, thanks for always being a great supporter of the show and, and coming on today to, uh, to talk about an important topic. No worries. Cheers, fellas. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thank you, Phil Walker, for being an excellent guest. It's been a long time since he's been on the podcast. I actually thought about it um, as we were recording. The last time Phil came on and did a proper ep with us was in our first season in 2015. We had... Who do we have with us? It was after. Was, it? was that the last yeah, time? Yeah, the last time we had t- Emma John. Emma John, that's right. Emma John and Phil uh-huh. sat with us in a studio you in London. Yep. It was a very different show back then. I doubt that recording even exists anymore. It does. It does. Oh, great. I'd love to mm. listen back to it one day. I, might, I, I keep meaning to put some of the, the old stuff on the feed, but yeah. I haven't done it. So, you know, if you want to emotionally blackmail me in the DMs <laughs> or something, if you want to tell me it would make your life better, then it might it might make it happen. He did an excellent job working with me on SENZ as a summariser during the, uh, the the Birmingham test as well. So, uh, yeah, get a hold yeah. of the magazine, Wisdom Cricket Monthly, to learn more about how we can make the World Test Championship better. Uh, as we say goodbye, we issue our, mm-hmm. our standard thank yous to Bad Producer Productions, the network we are on, the label we are on, uh, Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards, who run the show, and Dave Collins, who edits us with love uh, week in, week out, uh, more than uh, week in, week out at the moment because we're making about fucking... 10 shows a week, which is great. So thank you, DC, for all of that. Find their other shows at badproducerproductions.com. Thank you to the team at Zolio for supporting us now over a long period of time. We're grateful for it. Thank you to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Thank you to Woodstock Cricket Bats. You can find out more about them in our show notes and win yourself a 20% discount on a brand new blade. Thanks to everybody who looks after us on Patreon. Uh, It means the world to us. And hopefully we'll have that forum up soon so you can talk more amongst yourselves and engage with us uh, week to week through that platform. Thank you to everybody who reviews and rates us on iTunes. I know it sounds weird, but it does make a difference. And I think that's just about it, Jeff. We're going to be back with more daily shows. We aren't quite Mm -hmm. sure which days we're going to pinpoint yet, but there'll be a lot of daily shows uh, through the month of July and then the weekly show next week and then story time the week after that. There's a, a line from a live recording from the, the rock star poet Derek Brown where he comes out and says, 40 shows in two nights. And that's how I feel at the moment. That's, <laughs> that's what the final word is. Uh, on it, guys. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you in the podcast feed or on the YouTubes or whatever it is um, next time we do a show. Which will be- Sounds good to me. Bye. I had to go away.